Good morning. Good to see you. Uh, my name is John Stallsmith, and I normally preach down at Grace Snellville, and Brian asked me to come out and preach this morning as we start a new series. I've been part of the Grace Family of Churches since 2004. I'm married. I've got three kids. Bethany is six, Maggie's four, Jordan is two, and my wife and I are tired. But I also was watching you all come in, and you guys have some great beards out here, you know? Like, back in Snellville, my beard is fine. But here, I feel like my beard has about six months before it reaches full maturity. So thank you for that, and hopefully Brian will invite me back out sometime six to eight months from now, and I can have a proper beard for this Monroe community. Um, I also have another question. Does the table usually stay here? Like, what does Brian do with, with the table? Because I feel like I'm kind of like a little off kilter. Can I move this to the middle? Does that work? That's okay? Okay. Whew. I love it. You guys are flexible. Uh, if you have your Bible, go ahead and open it up to the book of Joel. And if you don't have a Bible, I think we've got some right over there. You can probably slip up your hand and get a Bible that way. And we've got some people who will put a Bible in your hand. And as I mentioned, this is a new summer series, and it's called Book of the Twelve, which is what the Jewish community calls the writings of the twelve prophets whose books are found in our Bibles just before the beginning of the New Testament. So if you're still looking for Joel, find Matthew, and then go back a little bit in your Old Testament, and it's right there, kind of sandwiched between Hosea and Amos. And these prophets, whose words make up the book of the Twelve, they brought the word of the Lord to God's people over the course of several hundred years. Some of them warned about coming judgment. At other points, they brought comfort after the judgment of exile had occurred. And these words, as you read through these prophets this summer, you'll find at points they are terrifying. And at other times, they are extremely comforting. Some of the sections of these prophets are really hard to understand. Other parts are crystal clear. We remember as we read that they are thousands of years old, and yet I'm always amazed at how relevant and current their words are. And in the midst of all that, kind of through the summer, as we read these prophets, we want to hold a certain lens to them. How do we understand these prophets? And we're going we're to read them in the way that Jesus teaches us to read them. So I think we have a slide for this, but Matthew 22, there's a very famous passage where a lawyer comes up to Jesus and says, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So ultimately, this book of the twelve, these words of the prophets, will keep coming back to loving God and loving our neighbor. Jesus says that the, the prophets hang on that. That's where their focus is. And so anytime you're reading through these prophets and you're going, man, this seems really complicated, go back to what Jesus says. It's about loving God and loving our neighbors. Now as we get to the book of Joel specifically, I want us to sort of set the stage as we begin reading the book of, of Joel 
by remembering a pretty famous scene from the movie Gone with the Wind. How many of you guys have seen Gone with the Wind? I mean, it's, it's kind of old. It was like 1939 it came out, so no big deal if you haven't caught it in the theater. But in that movie, <laughs> in that movie, Scarlet, the heroine, um, just before the intermission, because it's a really long movie, they actually put a break in the middle of it, uh, just before the intermission, she comes back to Terra, which is their family property here in the south, and the plantation has been devastated by the Union soldiers of the Civil War coming through. And so this is a screenshot from the film. And you just get this sense that everything has been wiped out and burned. And in the scene, she kind of staggers out into one of the wasted fields, and she finds this dirty carrot and brushes it off and then kind of scarfs it down. And for whatever reason, that scene has just stuck with me, and whenever I read the book of Joel, that's my picture, just desperation in a devastated field. Because Joel is writing to similarly devastated people. Read this, Joel 1, we'll read the first seven verses together. Uh, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders, give ear all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it. Let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. So I know we've got a few young people in the room, some kids in the room. This book of Joel is not just for the elders and the older folks. It's for the young people too. Verse 4, What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. What the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. That verse is my wife's nightmare. Layers upon layers of bugs. When we first bought a house over in Lilburn, I thought I could do pest control at my house on my own. And then one evening, a locust, uh, not a locust, a, a roach flew onto her arm in the kitchen. And we've paid for pest control ever since. Verse 5. <laughs> Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come against my land, powerful and beyond number, its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. This incredible poetry about the invasion of these locusts. And when your whole economy is farming, swarms of locusts coming through, well, that's a catastrophe. And Joel describes what has happened to the land, wave upon wave of these cutting, swarming, hopping, destroying bugs, just carving through your fields. I can imagine being a farmer, and you can see that dark cloud of the bugs on the horizon just coming through, and you're, you're, you're scared that they're going to land in your land, and, and you kind of pray, God, would they pass over? And when they don't, oh, the heartbreak. And verse 7 there talks about the vine and the fig tree. And that vine and fig tree combination is really common in the Old Testament prophets. It was the idea sort of that if 
you had a vine and a fig tree as a family, you'd be okay. You could, you could live off of the fruit of those figs and off of the grapes. It's sort of like the equivalent, saying vine and fig tree, it's kind of like the equivalent of the American dream of having a home and a white picket fence or something like that. And so when it says that the locusts have destroyed the economy and obliterated the Israelite dream, it really hits home. They've laid waste to my vine and my fig tree, it says. And so the question arises, if this is the situation, what do God's people do when they face a society-wide catastrophe on this scale? And Joel suggests two things. The first, is that we lament. We can't live in denial. We can't go out in the field and say, actually, there's a bunch of fruit here, because there isn't. And so seven times in the first 13 verses, Joel tells the people to cry out, lament, and wail. But then the second thing that Joel tells the people of God to do is interpret the catastrophe. And Joel says very clearly that this locust invasion is a sign that the day of the Lord is near. It says it in verse 15 and then another several times here in the book of Joel. It's the recurring theme. Many would say even the day of the Lord is the focus of the book of Joel. And something interesting happens in chapter 2. We'll do just three verses here. And just so you know, each week when we do these uh, book of the Twelve series, we're going to kind of bring together a full book, with like, not necessarily breaking it into a bunch of chunks, but in one sermon, get a sense of what is this book saying. And, and so in chapter 2, Joel says, Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Now this, chapter 2, sounds a lot like chapter 1, what we heard with the locusts, But what we find as we read it is this is actually a description of a second coming invasion. Down at verse 20, Joel says, This invasion will be an army, not of bugs, but of people coming from the north. And they will swarm the land. And it says in verse 11 that these people, this army is actually led by God. And it is His judgment that's coming. Essentially, in chapter 2, Joel says, if you thought the locusts were bad, you haven't seen anything yet. And so, here is how Joel is teaching God's people to interpret the plague of locusts. The plague of locusts is a reminder how much can change in a day. How dramatically life can be turned upside down on a society-wide scale. And we need that reminder because it's very easy for us in our lives to get into our everyday rhythm, 
We kind of get to a place where we think life is never going to change. And then when something does change, we're shocked and surprised. Like, what? I thought life was just going to be like this all the time. And we need these reminders because it's easy for us to read the Scripture and hear the promise that God will return. The day of the Lord is coming. And when He does, He's going to set things right. He's going to deal with evil. He's going to restore everything. And so we can, in our heads, kind of remember, oh yeah, the day of the Lord is you know, coming. It's something in the Bible. Yeah, that's a, a, important. But it's probably not going to happen in my time and everything. It just kind of drifts off into that file cabinet. You know, sort of like, like some of my, my, my Social Security card documents and things like that. It just gets filed away and just sits there, but it's not really a day-to-day part of my life. I mean, the truth is that for most of us, we're more aware of the day of the week that it is than we are aware of the day of the Lord that is promised coming. I know my rhythm, Sunday, what I do on Sunday, getting ready for Monday, but I don't think about the day of the Lord. And Joel says that when we have these catastrophic moments when life gets turned upside down it is a reminder that life can change you lament your loss you also interpret what has happened joel's basically saying let it be a sort of shocking jolt to your system that god is real and god has a day there is a day of the lord and so when we experience that catastrophe and and we have to interpret how we handle it. What, what do we do? What do we do? Now, in Gone with the Wind, Scarlet, out in that burned-up vegetable field, lifts her fist in defiance in that famous closing scene of Gone with the Wind. She says, As God is my witness, as God is my witness, they're not going to lick me. I'm going to live through this. And when it's all over, I'll never be hungry again, she vows. No, nor any of my folk. If I have to lie, steal, cheat, or kill, as God is my witness, I'll never be hungry again. Now, in the movie, the soundtrack is swelling, and you can't help but admire her grit. And there's something deep down inside of you that's like, yeah, you show them, Scarlet. Whatever you have to do, lie, steal, cheat, kill, you make sure you look out for yourself. And there's a part of us that really relates to it, but much as we might admire her grit, Scarlet's speech is not Scripture. And her response, even though there's something inside of us that really relates to it, is not exactly a biblical response, is it? I'll do whatever I can to protect myself. That's a very human impulse. Even if I have to lie, cheat, steal, kill, I'm going to protect my own. That's a a very familiar thing. Like That rises up in me when I face hard times. But Joel says we ought to do something much different. This is chapter 2, verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, Return to me with all your heart. There it is, just like Jesus talked about. The prophets hang on loving God with all your heart and loving your neighbor. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts, and not your garments. 
Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And He relents over disaster. Who knows whether He will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind Him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. So Joel here says when crisis hits, it's a reminder that God is real. And when you're reminded that God is real, you need to return to God. So as reading Joel, I just began to wonder how our country would handle this invasion of locusts if it were to happen here today. Probably right off the bat, our scientists would fast track the development of pesticides to deal with the locusts. The politicians would probably start working on relief policies, maybe a locust stimulus plan. The news media would probably start publishing daily reports about the impact of the new cutting locust variant or the new swarming locust variant. They might even give us some Greek letters to designate which variant of locust we're dealing with. And all that is well and good, and and God gives us scientists and human ingenuity to help deal with problems and politicians and the media for some reason. But but that response, that response, is actually not what Joel says is the first priority of God's people. Joel says the first priority of God's people when facing a crisis like this is to repent, to return to God, to look to God. That these moments of crisis are actually not a sign that God has abandoned us, but it's a a reminder to lament and interpret how God is working through this. Now, I have a rhetorical question in light of what what Joel says. And rhetorical means like, don't raise your hand. Just think about it, okay? But how many of you would say that over the last few years, as we've gone through some crisis in our country, how many of you would say over the last few years, uh, your relationship with God has become deeper and more transparent? How, How many of us have become more humble? these last couple of years, more aware of our stubborn selfishness and our need for God's grace. How many of us have become more gracious and generous toward our neighbors? Joel says that when you go through a crisis, it's a reminder God is real and that His day is still coming So repent. Turn to God. And then he has this amazing question in verse 14. Who knows whether God will turn and relent? Maybe that's a troubling question to you. Who knows? Why why would Joel say that? Isn't God's mercy guaranteed? And here's here's why that question is in there. And that, that phrase actually appears a lot of times in the Old Testament. Who knows what God will do? And it's a reminder that our relationship with God is not mechanical. It's not like God is some sort of machine and then if you like press a certain 
button, then you start a process that will always guarantee a certain kind of result. The, the reason it raises the question there in chapter 2, verse 14, who knows what God will do, is because God is free and God wants a real relationship with us. Joel says, don't go through the motions of just tearing your garments. Like, really, God wants your heart. And so where is your heart? Where is your heart? Who knows, says Joel, whether he will not turn and relent. Now the good news here in the book of Joel is that God does turn. The turning point in verse 18, it says, The Lord became jealous for his land, had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I'm sending you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. We actually don't know here in the book of Joel if the people repented, but we do know that God relented. He showed mercy. And in the balance here of chapter 2, He promises much that He's going to overturn the great armies of the north. He calls the land and the people to rejoice. In verse 25, He has an incredible promise saying, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten. And you will know that I'm in the midst of my people. And so God promises to deliver them in the midst of their real-time crisis, to avert the invasion that was promised in chapter 2. And then there's another promise, and this comes at the end of, of chapter 2, and this is where we're going to land here and kind of bring some stuff together. Joel says in verse 28, it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I'll pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. There it is again, day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Now for many of us, this passage is familiar. It's just the week after Pentecost, and so maybe you're even on the church calendar, so maybe you're even making some connections between this verse and where it shows up again in the book of Acts. But Imagine reading this promise hundreds of years before Jesus came to the earth. Like, what would you make of it? If you were to read this, how would you understand it? And maybe the first thing you'd think is like, wow, people are going to experience the day of the Lord very differently. That those who call on the name of the Lord are saved. It's a great day. The day of the Lord is awesome because it's the day of salvation. But those who resist God experience the day of the Lord as deep judgment. And that's actually what all of chapter 3 is about. We're not going to spend a ton of time reading that, actually, this morning. But, but there's a very different experience of the day of the Lord. That those who are turning to God rejoice, and those who resist God experience judgment. But maybe also, if you're reading this verse before the time of Christ, you see that God is going to pour out His Spirit on His people. That He's going to be present with His people. 
before the great and awesome day of the Lord. It's interesting because the day of the Lord in Joel and then throughout the prophets is very much a day when God is present in the earth, like God shows up to deal with evil, wickedness, salvation. And yet here in Joel, it says that God's Spirit will be poured out on His people before the day of the Lord. That in a sense, God's people get to experience that salvation of the Lord's day in advance, before the day of the Lord hits. And that seems to imply that there will be many seasons of crisis for God's people, many waves of locusts through the years, and that's not exactly the most exciting thing for us to hear, But the promise of God is that God will give us His Spirit so that we can have hope and joy in the midst of the upheavals of this life. And this promise about the Spirit being poured out is on all flesh, like all humans. Those who are old and those who are young. But the gift of the Holy Spirit to God's people will help to heal the generation gap. I I, I don't know about you, but for me, I've observed over these last years especially, there is a pretty significant gap between generations. The way that maybe young people see the world and the way that people a little bit older see the world. And I remember, this is about a year or two ago, we were walking on the Greenway Trail, my wife and I, behind our house, and, and, and we saw like four high school guys walking toward us down the trail, and I looked at them, and like their clothing just made no sense to me. I was like, what are these kids wearing? It's just like the Head headbands and, and and they weren't like dressing up. It wasn't like some Halloween or costume day or anything like that. It was just this was their normal clothing, and it didn't make sense to me. Like one guy was wearing a letter jacket with no shirt underneath. It's like what kind of style decision is that? If you're looking for that amount of like warmth, just wear a t-shirt. Why would you wear a heavy jacket and no shirt? Anyway, it was just very confusing to me. And I, I looked at Amy. I said, well. I think it just happened. I am now on the other side of young. Like I'm a, as soon as your brain starts going, kids these days, you know you've, you've bridged the gap to the other side of the generations. And it's a real gap. And yet God's Spirit, the promise here is that God's Spirit heals that gap between the generations. Uh, It also says the Spirit of God is going to be poured out on sons and daughters, to servants, male and female. That the Spirit helps to heal the divides between men and women, between the genders. That, That with the gift of the Holy Spirit, even in the midst of crisis, men and women will live into everything God has made them to be. And neither men nor women are pressed into a diminished role. And we can think about that on a bigger social scale, but I think about it even just like for my marriage. The place where the challenges of being a man and a woman 
in oneness are most apparent. And I hear this promise, and it gives me great hope that I need the Holy Spirit to be a good husband, to be a man who leads in my family. And my wife needs the Holy Spirit to be all that God has made her to be. And I'm grateful that the promise here is that both men and women, young and old, servants even, that the Spirit heals the gaps and divides between socioeconomic status of people. Those who are rich, those who are poor, even those who are subjugated. When the Spirit is poured out on God's people and we're living the life of God's Spirit, these things start to come back together. And so if you're reading the book of Joel before the time of Jesus, you might wonder, like, what is this going to look like? This sounds crazy. Generations coming together, like, like men and women, the gender gaps being healed, the, the socioeconomic problems in the world being brought together and, and healed in God. Like, what is that going to be like? And of course, when we do move forward in the story, Jesus comes to the earth, He's crucified and resurrected. After the resurrection, the Scripture tells us that He was with His disciples 40 days, teaching them about the kingdom of God. Then, of course, the beginning of the book of Acts, He ascends up into heaven and tells them that they need to wait for the coming Spirit of God from on high. And they will be then released as witnesses into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And so, those disciples wait and pray day after day. And then on the day of Pentecost, they're in that upper room, and there's a sound of the mighty rushing wind, and little flames appear over everyone's head, and the group spills out into the streets of Jerusalem, and they begin to speak about what God has done for them in Jesus. And the people heard the good news in their own languages. It's a miracle of the Holy Spirit. And then Peter gets up to preach to interpret what's happening. And his sermon text happens to be these very verses from Joel chapter 2. He's saying, hey guys, what's happening right now on the day of Pentecost is the fulfillment of the promise that God would pour out His Spirit on all flesh. And it's healing the generations. And it's healing the men and women, it's healing the socioeconomic issues, and it's healing across ethnicities, like all these languages being spoken, people called together in the good news of Jesus. For Peter, all flesh here means all flesh, regardless of country or color of skin. Everyone for Peter, everyone for us who laments and repents and calls in the name of the Lord, shall receive His Holy Spirit. In Acts 2, that story of Pentecost with the wind and the flames and the preaching in the street, I mean, it shows us that the Holy Spirit of God does a lot of things in the life of a believer. The Holy Spirit is our guide. Remember in the wilderness, the people of God had the pillar of fire that would lead them by night. Well, at Pentecost, every disciple gets their own little pillar of fire. That's part of the symbolism of those flames of fire. The Holy Spirit is going to guide all of us. 
that He indwells us. It says in Acts 2, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, The Spirit empowers us. He enabled them to speak in other languages and and share their faith. Uh, The Holy Spirit regenerates us. Think about the transformation. Those disciples are in the upper room with the doors locked for fear of the authorities. And when the Spirit of God comes, it's like they're totally new people. They go from being fearful to bold in a moment when the Spirit is poured out. But really, the Joel verses here that Peter focuses on, they emphasize another aspect of what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. The verses here focus on prophecies, dreams, and vision. What does that mean? And I know for me, I used to read that, I, 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 I would interpret it to mean that there's a promise. The Holy Spirit is going to tell us exactly what awesome thing we're going to do with our lives. I don't know if you ever saw the movie uh, Three Amigos. Because I'm an old guy on the other side of young. It was part of my growing up experience. But there's a scene in the Three Amigos. This is a silly movie, but it's like these three guys and they're actors, but they think they're going to get this huge payoff for what they're doing. And so they're one night sitting around saying, hey, what are you going to do with your share of the money? And Steve Martin goes, I'm going to buy a big, shiny silver car. And then Chevy Chase, the second amigo, says, I'm going to go to New York, Paris. I'm going to live like a big shot for a while. And then Martin Short, the third amigo, says, I'm going to start a foundation for homeless children. And the first two guys, oh, yeah, 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 totally. I was going to do that too. And then I'll get the silver car. You know, I mean, I'm kind of convicted by it. But, but like, they're sitting around kind of dreaming about what they're going to do with their share of the money, you know? And when I read this, in the past I've read it and thought, oh, okay, so what am I going to do with my share of the money? Like, like the Holy Spirit's going to give me my dream or my vision. I, I'm going to have a million-dollar idea, or if not a million-dollar idea, maybe some kind of awesome ministry idea where I'll become super, I don't know, whatever, successful And so when I was in my 20s, that was like the only way I could read this. But I'm not 25 anymore. And I've seen the Holy Spirit of God working in the lives of people do awesome stuff. I've seen people get healed. I've seen people get that vision and live into it and watch it flourish. But you know what else? I've seen a lot of people who are really faithful not get healed. I've seen a lot of people who are really faithful pray for their kids and it doesn't turn out how they hoped. I've seen a lot of people in hard circumstances, whether it's their job, their family, or their life, and they pray and the circumstances didn't really change. And now as I read this verse in Joel again, at this point in my life, I think I've realized that if we hear the words prophecies and dreams and visions primarily as like a promise of personal plans for personal success, then then we're reading it wrongly. We're actually maybe even co-opting these verses of the Scripture to serve our own agendas because we're so success and comfort-driven. Because in the Bible, these words, dreams, visions, prophecies, 
most often, they're used to speak of seeing the truth of what's happening around us and the truth of God's future promises. Now, sometimes that does include personal success. Like Joseph had a dream about how God was going to bless him. But that's not the primary thing. The real thing is that these dreams, these visions, these prophecies, it's about seeing what's really happening. Abraham Heschel, uh, the, the rabbi, Jewish rabbi, defines prophecy in the Bible as exegesis of existence from a divine perspective. In other words, reality from God's point of view. So dreams and visions and prophecies doesn't mean you always will know what to do, nor does it mean that your challenging job situation right now is suddenly going to become a multi-million dollar startup if you just get the right vision. No, that's not actually what it's talking about. What it does mean, dreams and visions, prophecies, it means you can know God and that you can understand the world around you and have faith and that you can have a hope regardless of your situation. Like we've been saying, the central theme of Joel is the day of the Lord, that God is going to show up and deal with the world. And for some people, it's going to be a really bad day. For other people, it's going to be a really, really great day. But to deal with these Holy Spirit dreams and visions is that the gift of the Holy Spirit brings certainty to you and to me as believers that on the day of the Lord, it will go well for us. You see, the gift of the Holy Spirit isn't so much about happiness, but hope. Real hope. And when we have real hope, we can have joy in any circumstance. When we have real hope, we can face anything. Think about it. If you believe there's a day of the Lord and that and that you, you are going to be on the right side of it when it happens, what can you not face in this life? What crisis and catastrophe extinguishes that hope? There is nothing. It reminds me of the passage at the end of Hebrews chapter 11. And of course, Hebrews 11 is that great hall of faith passage talking about how all these people of God through history have had faith, by faith, by faith, by faith Abraham, by faith Sarah, by faith Noah, by faith. And then there's sort of this summary statement at the end, but something really interesting happens here. Let's bring it up on the screen if we can. Hebrews 11. The writer of Hebrews says, what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. And then in the middle of verse 35, doesn't even get its own verse, just 35b stuff changes. Some were tortured. What? refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging 
and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. I read the first half of that list, and I'm like, yes, victory, conquest, lions, mouths being closed. I read the second part of that list, and I'm like, no, torture? Not, I don't think so. I very much prefer list one to list two. But the point that the writer of Hebrews is making is that whether your situation is miraculously successful or deeply painful, the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit poured out in our lives will give us the dreams and the visions and the prophecies, the, the, the window into what's really happening, that we can have hope and face whatever it is that is in front of us. That even if we look out and we see the fields devastated by locusts through the gift of the Holy Spirit, we know when God sets everything right, we're going to be on the right side of it. And so we can hope and we can trust in God. That He will carry us through even the most challenging situations. I love the story of Julian of Norwich. She lived a long time ago. 1300s. And she's an anchoress, which meant that she was like kind of a, she withdrew from society to pray and live a life of intense piety. She lived through the Black Plague in her city that historians estimate killed about half the people in the city. Had a lot of hard experiences. But when she was around the age of 30, she got really, really ill herself, and she was on her deathbed and really expected that she was going to die. And she had a series of visions during that time, and they wrote them down as a kind of cool thing to go look up and read about. She's got some really interesting stuff. But the 13th vision is probably the most famous one. And she's having this like vision, this conversation with the Lord, like a listening prayer sort of thing. And she said, in my folly, before this time, the vision, I offered, often wondered why, by the great foreseeing wisdom of God, why the onset of sin was not prevented. For then I thought, all should have been well. I shouldn't have thought this way, but nevertheless, I mourned and sorrowed because of it, without reason and discretion. She's like, God, why didn't you just keep sin out of the world? It would have made everything better. Maybe you've had that thought. I have. But Jesus, she said, who in this vision informed me of all that is needed by me, answered with these words and said, it was necessary that there should be sin but all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. That comfort 
in the midst of crisis, that all should be well. That's the gift of the Holy Spirit that Joel promises before the great day of the Lord. I guess the question for us this morning is, has the Spirit of God been poured out in your life? Do you have that hope that all shall be well? And all shall be well. And all manner of things shall be well. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Now it's easy to resist and to quench the work of the Holy Spirit, that kind of work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, get caught up in all the other stuff that gives us anxiety, frustration. We can still grieve and lament like Joel says when stuff goes wrong, but do you have that deep down, rock bottom, firm conviction that all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. How do you live with that? That's the promise of the Scripture. And what Peter says in that great day of Pentecost, when he preaches from Joel chapter 2, he says, turn, turn to Jesus, trust Jesus, the resurrected one. He's the one through whom we receive this gift. And so as we conclude, as is usual around here on Sundays, there's communion elements on either side of the room. And this morning, as you celebrate the Lord's Supper, if you go to take communion, recognize your eating the bread and drinking the cup means you're embracing the work of Jesus. That you're actually putting your trust afresh in Jesus, just as Peter said was the crucial turning point in our lives in order to receive this gift of the Holy Spirit and that deep conviction. And it may be that as you reflect on your life, and whether you take communion or not, just think about your relationship with the Lord, it may be that you have room to return to God. Maybe a simple prayer this morning between you and the Lord would just say, Lord, pour out Your Spirit again. I'm lacking that hope. I, 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 I need Your Spirit to restore the hope that creates an environment for joy in my heart, even when things are devastated around me. And if you're wrestling with that and you need to pray with somebody, we've got people in the back of the room here in just a moment as we respond to God in worship that you can pray with. But before we take communion, before we sing, before we pray, let me just pray for us. God, thank You for these words. Thousands of years old and yet so piercing and relevant. Thank You how they tie into the great story of what You've done to redeem humanity. And thank You, God, that You've made a way that for those of us with faith, we can rest assured that You are going to save us on that day. And Lord, right now as we just sit before You, we invite Your Holy Spirit to begin shining light and illuminating and giving us those dreams and visions and prophecies that You've promised. The kind that give us real hope. And whether that's something in our own lives specific to our situation or just the broad reassurance that You are with us and for us. Lord, I pray that this morning we would have an experience of You and Your goodness. That You would speak to us and You'd fill our hearts and minds. 
In Jesus' name, amen.